The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. everybody and welcome back to we've got mail this is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the critically acclaimed network my name is william bibiani i am a critic everybody calls me bibs my name is whitney seibold i too am a critic and here on this letter episode you may if you so desire call me rockmeister mccool how kind of you i respect you it's 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 not sacrifice uh, you're making it, it's cooler than I am. That nickname uh, oh, so it does, doesn't doesn't match uh, doesn't match anything. Anyway, but you can use it. Anyway, uh, yeah. So here you can uh, write in. You can ask us all kinds of questions. You can talk about stuff that comes up in our podcasts. You can ask us for recommendations. Um, anything at all, really. We try to be as open as we can. Uh, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed dot net. Uh, and uh, we would love to hear from you. So let's just dive right in. We don't like to waste any time at the front of this podcast because the time is yours. Whitney. Yes. What have we got? We have a letter from Will. Oh, is Not, it me? You wrote in. You know, you can just talk to me. I know. You have to do this so passive aggressive. <laughs> no, it's a letter from Will. Please, Thank you, Will. Hi, Will. Please return my garden shears. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. This is uh, M-Y-S-T-E-R. McCool is spelled M-C-K-U-U-L-E. One thing we have discovered over the course of this podcast is there is no wrong way to spell mm. Rockmeister McCool. Every spelling is the correct spelling. Uh, I recently have been catching up on some movies and I miss, that I missed, and I've been moving through Criterion's box set entitled America Lost and Found the BBS Story. Mm. Uh, I hadn't seen any of the films in the set besides The Last Picture Show, which is my favorite film of all time, so I decided to start with Head. Ah. The weird-ass monkeys film, and have since seen Five Easy Pieces, which I found strikingly beautiful, and Easy Rider, which I found strikingly boring. <laughs> I hope to see the rest soon. With all that rambling, my question regards to those films in the Lost and Found collection and why they are indeed somewhat lost in time. Not that they are unheard of, several will nominate for Oscars, but why is that period in American cinema slash New Wave Hollywood not as remembered as the movie brats type affair in the latter part of the decade? In my opinion, the likes of The Last Picture Show and Five Easy Pieces are just as radical and revolutionary as Coppola's or Scorsese's 70s features. What are your thoughts? Sincerely, Will. That's an interesting period in cinema. Um, it's one of those transitional phases. It's actually incredibly important to setting up that sort of new wave of director-oriented American cinema that people love to praise so much about the 1970s, where indeed filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, they started uh, coming into prominence and making uh, big movies that were not only artistically fascinating, but also big hits. But in order to get there, there needed to be a sort of rebellion against the Hollywood mainstream. Mm. Uh, the Hollywood mainstream had dominated the box office in America for pretty much the whole time, at least by the time we invented the studio system. Um, they were big, they were powerful for a long time. They had a legitimate monopoly 
over films and the way that they were distributed and movie theaters themselves, uh, which ended up having to be decided in the Supreme Court, which said that vertical integration was not legal. And it was illegal for a movie production company to control not only the movies themselves, but also how they are distributed. Mm. Interestingly enough, now that movie studios are starting to all have their own distribution systems again via streaming, the uh, U.S. justice system has announced that they are not going to follow that law anymore. They just, didn't. Just, they're not going to enforce it. Yeah, they just decided, like they didn't, they didn't, fuck it. Yeah. Which is actually, I think it's a big problem, but whatever, someday someone's going to challenge that and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But in any case, in the 1960s, um, studios were, like they often do, going through a fallow period. There were still some good studio movies being made, some excellent studio movies being made, but they weren't like dominating the pop culture landscape the way that they did in, say, the 30s and 40s. And... Now that vertical integration was gone and independent movies had a better chance of actually reaching movie theaters, independently minded films were starting to rise into increasing prominence. And they had been Mm -hmm. since the 50s. But um, in the late 60s, films like the movies in this set were an absolute slap in the face of regular culture. There's a phrase we have called counterculture. And right now... The culture we have is very bifurcated and in some cases trifurcated and quadfurcated and quintfurcated and all of these, like, it's it's splayed out all over. But when something like Easy Rider came out, there was actually, and I'm stealing this phrase from Alonzo Duralde, a better film critic than I am, mm. there was actually a culture to be countered to. Well, here, here's what we got now. Uh, we have a mainstream culture that thought it was counterculture, but mm. never was. Maybe maybe for a brief window that the stuff that's really popular now was counterculture, but it stopped being counterculture quite some time ago. It did stop quite some time ago. I do think it was counterculture for at least a few decades. Spider-Man, that kind of stuff, that was counterculture for a bit. Yeah, it was sort of like these subcultures, and then it just became mainstream. And uh, now we have a counterculture again, thanks to the young kids who are using TikTok to... You know, foil politicians and Boy, shit. Isn't an exciting it's time for great. that? It's great. I love it so much. I, I love you, Gen Z kids. Keep keep doing what you're doing, man. Yeah, stick it to the man. Um, but that kind of mentality, that kind of stick it to the man mentality, is what a lot of the films um, in this set are all about. And when you're divorced from the context of the time, those movies don't quite have the same power that they used to. That might be fascinating. Mm. It might be you might be able to learn about them and figure out why something like Bonnie and Clyde felt like, no, that's not in the set, but like why something like Bonnie and Clyde was this like huge, like, holy shit, movies can be sexy and violent now. doesn't seem that sexy or violent anymore. Like it's still a good movie, but it doesn't seem like, holy shit, <laughs> the way it used to. So yeah. And that's something I think Criterion does a pretty good job of. They do a good job of adding like, you know, essays and special features to put films in their proper context, to curate them, if you will. Um, but yeah, there's just no substitute for being able to watch it without that context and still pick up on why it's great. And I don't think, and I actually haven't seen Easy Rider. I'm a little embarrassed by that. Tisk, tisk. Uh, but you know, I remember watching five easy pieces just kind of in a vacuum mm-hmm. for the first time. And I respected it as a character piece. I think Jack Nicholson's really wonderful in it, but I actually found it kind of slow and ponderous. 
And well, I think it is, but I do think it was a reaction to something that I wasn't living in at the moment, and as a result, I didn't really feel it. Well, the whole, uh, just the, the American culture at the time was going through, it wasn't just the movie business that was going through a fallow period. Culture was becoming really cynical. That We were uh, becoming disenfranchised with a lot of the post-war boom, a lot of the uh, sort of cleanliness of the 1950s had given away to uh, revealing just how much ugliness and, and racism and sexism there really was in society. Yeah. A lot of... Uh, you know, greed and rampant corruption was starting to show its head more and more and more. Yeah. And as such, young filmmakers were feeling very bitter. And we had films like Easy Rider, which was about how the American dream was really dead. There's a guy who unironically calls himself Captain America in that movie. Mm. Look what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I know all about it. Like, yeah, it's, the spoiler, sure you know it's been spoiled. It ends, but, like, but I, 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 the metaphor is and, pretty clear just from a basic explanation. And, and uh, the, the head is actually a really interesting example of this because the monkeys came up at a time, like, I'm not exactly sure what the actual dates of the official Beatlemania were, but they were clearly a band that was uh, constructed by a studio to compete with the Beatles. They were like American Beatles in a lot of ways. We can't control the Beatles. Let's have the Beatles we can control and exploit. Yeah, more or less. And uh, they got these uh, four very talented people, um, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, Mike Nesbeth, and Mickey Dolenz. They had their own sitcom, and... They were, for even at the time and still to this day, were frequently accused of not playing their own instruments, not writing their own songs. They not, weren't yeah. about that. They were about rebellion. <laughs> they, they were, the a, a lot of people were about sort of accused them of being just sort of this big sort of corporate product. Of course, how did those four guys feel about it? Of course, they resented it. A lot of them, a lot of them, they're, they're all four of them, talented songwriters and musicians. Sure. Um, at least two of them are very good singers. And... <laughs> Look, don't listen to Peter Tork's solo stuff, all right? It's just... I I love Peter Tork, but don't buy his solo records. They're kind of embarrassing. Uh, And Nez just sort of went way off the deep end. He started doing these, like, double albums based on, like, poems he wrote about his garden. It's just this weird stuff. (laughs) Sounds amazing. But his TV specials are really funny. He did stuff like Elephant Parts and Television Parts, which Mm. are, like, these absurdist classics. Uh, But by the time they got to a TV special called 33 and a Third Revolutions Per Monkey, and as well as the movie Head, they were essentially coming to terms with and really trying to explode this idea that they were artificial and reveal kind of how horrible it was to be this construct. Yeah. That the monkeys were this construct and how artificial pop culture was just artificial humanity. Are there any other like major pop culture like creations? Not someone mm. who like was talented, got sucked into popular culture mm. and but they were always their own thing, but like popular culture invented this thing uh-huh. and then eventually it kind of became counterculture by eating its own tail like that. By deliberately eating its yeah, own like, tail. Yeah, like I'm trying like to think that. of like other it, it things. It grabbed where, its own tail and started munching. Yeah, I'm trying to think about that. Like just some other, like, you know, because the Spice Girls didn't really do that. I mean, Spice mm. World was kind of self reflexive, but it was but they still, were still selling the, the yeah, Spice they, Girls. They were as, still the Spice Girls in that movie. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't to starting of, to, like, explode their image. I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, mm. I'm trying to think of what that would be, but I can't think of it. Mm. I know. Be like if the Jonas Brothers made like a Harmony Korine movie mm. about how awful the Jonas Brothers. Exactly, were. like yeah. that's the thing. Like a lot of people like start off as these sort of like Disney actors, people like um, uh, Ryan Gosling, for example, yeah, and he goes Miley off, Cyrus, and, yeah, yeah, and they go off and do their own thing, and they do more mature kinds of art forms, and but that's their career. It's not them as a member of the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. 
doing these horrible things got, or doing these a, dramatic things. I got a whiff of that from the first Deadpool movie. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. That was a little bit more of a just like a slapstick farce. It wasn't really like this absurdist takedown of everything. I wish it, it could have gone so much further. I, I wish it had. I kind of wish the other X. I kind of wish it had ruined that X Men franchise because mm. like all the I think we had Logan after Deadpool and that was good, but. Beyond that, all the other X-Men movies that followed that, even to an extent Deadpool 2, which is okay, but not great. It's the same joke repeated. Yeah, and... it, it's fine. I just, I, I'm not impressed by it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, we can't really take them seriously after that, especially when the filmmakers don't seem to be taking it seriously and are kind of just resting on... Hmm. Reputation. <laughs> well, and... just crappy, you know, recycled storylines. Hey, let's do X-Men Last Stand again. Will it be good this time? Actually, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> then Why? Because I can. Why? I, no one asked for that. We have to get the character of Apocalypse in a movie. Why? Because we he, can. Because he's popular in the comics. Uh huh. Do we have a story to tell? Well, he's gonna like watch TV and say things like learning. <laughs> what a great movie! Woo! Remember the part of that movie where people like push their hands out in front of them and CGI pushed out of their hands and CGI pushed out of other people's hands and then the they, two they, different they colors of CGI the, met in the middle. Of, yeah, that's, remember that's, that. That's God. my. It's my favorite thing when two different colored beams meet midair and kind of blast each other. There's only one movie that ever did that in a cool way. No. No, I, I, I'm going to uh, fight you. Big Trouble in Little China. Because when the beams met in Big Trouble in Little China, the mm. beams turned into sword-wielding warriors and fought each other in the middle of the okay, beams. But that's that's not two beams, But it? No, that's but warriors. those warriors were in the beams. All right. They made it cool. All right. <laughs> they found a way well, to take... Even in the in, 80s, John Carpenter knew that sucked if you don't add something to it. And they even did that. Like, that was the Harry Potter finale. It's yeah. like Harry Potter and Lizard Man are going to shoot beams at each other. It's like, really? We waited eight movies for this shit? We're off the beaten path. Anyway, this Lost and Found box set, which is full of really, really good movies. Again, I haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen Easy Rider. There's at least mm. one other. I haven't seen Head. Um, I know of the Monkey's transformation, but I haven't seen Head. Easy Rider has long since been completely spoiled for me. It's just one of those pop culture osmosis things, right? Yeah, everything yeah. that happened in it, which is one of the reasons why I'm not like super, like, it, it's not like that at the top of my list of things to get to, just because I'm kind of familiar with it. But regardless, that's an interesting set. And you're right, it is an interesting period in film history that we don't talk about a lot because that sort of counterculture wave of American art house cinema and sort of subversive mm. mainstream cinema. Uh, paved the way for the era in the 70s that people like talking about more for some reason. Yeah. Um, where we got, you know, The Godfather, where we got, um, we got Mean the, Streets, and we got Taxi Driver, and we got Network, and we got all we, these. Yeah, we got a generation of filmmakers who were making, like, bigger, slicker movies, but with a lot more of a cynical yeah. adult take. And, and when that, that Easy really Rider good. came out, and it was this cheap movie, it was inexpensive, no one had oh, any yeah, hopes yeah. for it, and it made bank. All of a sudden, Hollywood realized, wait a minute, we don't have to spend money? Because their whole reaction was, well, everyone's like watching TV and listening to records and they're not really going to the movies as much anymore. What we should do is we should spend all the money possible to try to drag them into the theater with spectacle. And they had movies like Cleopatra or mm. The Long Ships. And, and Cleopatra, what a hit. What a, <laughs> didn't it take decades to make its money back? I think so. It eventually yeah, like, did. It but, eventually broke even, like yeah. Yeah, 30 but years later. Cleopatra is not a bad movie. It's It's just huge and unwieldy. And it's, people, it's a, it's a big piece of junk. It's it's good to watch. It's good junk. It's, yeah. it's good junk. Is my point. And uh, but yeah, 
all of a sudden, Hollywood realized we don't have to spend all the money in the world to have a hit film. What we need is something that feels counterculture, something that feels distinctive, something that is driven by an interesting artist, and people will pay for that, mm -hmm. and it'll cost us infinitely less. And that led to this fascinating wave of the 1970s. But yeah, that actual initial like movement mm -hmm. a little swept under the rug, isn't it? People just don't talk about it as much. Bit of a shame. It is a shame. Yeah. All right, let's move on. That's a great question. I'm, I'm glad that you're delving into that period. Yeah. I'm glad you're using this, you know, just your time to go into what, like, especially curated collections like the Criterion Collection and exploring these different eras, because that's what you should be doing all the time, I think. I think if you care a lot about movies, and not mm -hmm. just, like, as a pastime, I'm just watching something before I go to bed. If you really care about movies, even if you think you only care about modern movies, it behooves you to try to watch as many as possible. Movies are... Very accessible, and not and sometimes physically accessible. Like you can get a lot of them through streaming, or uh, if it's not available on streaming, you know you can get them on DVD through various websites and eBay's and stuff. But um, a lot of movies are designed to be inviting mm -hmm. because they need to capture your attention for a certain amount of time. So even like, well, except for Head, which pushes you out immediately. Well, there's a few that are out, there's yeah. a few that are just boldly trying to kick you out of the theater and daring you to watch it. Everything mm -hmm. from I don't know, last year at Marion Bad, which is so heady, you know, you, you might just tune out to the human centipede, which is so grotesque, it's it's just that it's just a dare. Yeah. Um there's no actual good reason to watch it. It's just like, well, I saw it. Okay. Did you get anything out of that? Nothing I liked. Cool. I, I actually wrote an essay on like the true meaning of the, the human centipede movies at one mm -hmm. point. It, they're they're interesting, but they're kind of a geek show and mm. Yeah, so um, in any case, yeah, exploring different periods of cinema, we're all doing that. We all have our blind spots. I don't care what film critic you're talking to, what film historian mm -hmm. you're talking to. Nobody's seen everything, and everyone's got something to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, next, let's go to the next letter. Let's do it. Here's a letter from Ben. Hi, Hi Ben. ben. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Rockmeister, oh, this is a good spelling. Ooh. Uh, R-O-K-M-A-J-S-T-E-R, mm. right? Ooh. Rockmeister. And McCool, M-C-K-U-umlaut, U-umlaut, L. Ooh. Or not umlaut. Uh, I actually don't know the name of the... Uh, it, the Motley small, Crue thing? The small circle. The, oh, I don't know that yeah. one, actually. Uh, sorry, Whitney. That's the best I can do with Rockmeister McCool and workable Czech phonics. Ooh, uh, Before cool. getting to my letter, I wanted to thank you both for some of the recent episodes that have led me into the direction of Hirokazu Koreeda. I recently enjoyed Shoplifters and recently got my hands on a DVD copy of Afterlife. I love Afterlife. And uh, just loved it to bits. All of the Hirokazu Koreeda gets when it gets yeah. all the credit for that. He's I been, love Hirokazu Koreeda. I've have been waving that little. flag. Uh, I spent the whole film either grinning, crying, or both. I'm glad it's just the second film of which I've uh, invested in a physical copy. Oh well, interesting. Got more. Keep them around. Okay, yeah. um, as for the question itself, uh, when I. While I was raised in the States, I was born in the Czech Republic and to a Czech father. Because of this, I've been engaging further and further with world cinema. I've also been diving deeper into the films of my own heritage, the prominence in which uh, the Czechoslovak new wave is held, has only made it feel more pressing. But so far, I've struggled to find films I can really connect to. Mm. Thus far, I've seen Foreman's The Fireman's Ball, uh, Yasny's All My Good Countrymen, and Vera Chitlova's technically post-new wave film The Very Late Afternoon of a Fawn. And they've all been quite strong films, but I haven't found the connection or impact I've been looking for. I've actually found more enjoyment entirely post-communist Czech cinema or the Polish films of Vida or Kozlowski. Hmm. Uh, I guess what I'm wondering is uh, if you might have any recommendations for the films of the Czech New Wave that have engaged with you the most or have been the most struck by. I hope that hasn't gone on too long. Stay healthy and thank you for all that you do, Ben. 
Uh, that is an excellent question, mm. and I'm worried we might have run into a blind spot. <laughs> Another blind spot. Yeah, uh, Whitney, is there any uh, films that come to mind? Have you well, heard of the Czech New Wave? The Czech New Wave was a really interesting time. It is when Milos Forman first started coming up, and mm-hmm. uh, the Fireman's Ball was really kind of kind of the one I know the best. Yeah. And if that's the one you can't engage with, then I think I'm at a loss here. Um, Valerie in her Week of Wonders is very well regarded. Okay. Uh, Um, I actually haven't... I'm actually looking right here just to sort of, uh, you know, crack Mm. open my skull, make sure I'm not forgetting anything. I am incredibly limited in my knowledge of the Czech New Wave. Uh, If you come go to any country's, quote, New Wave, you're probably going to find some really interesting films because there was a a deliberate attempt to change and alter the film landscape by younger artists who are just coming into prominence. Yeah, you don't get to be called the New Wave unless you're doing something novel, at Mm. least. Yeah, and uh, I feel like the Czech New Wave was compared to other countries' new waves, a little bit more wicked. Mm. They had a little bit more of a sense of humor about it. You watch yeah. French new wave films and you're not laughing a lot. You watch Japanese new wave films and you're kind of depressed a lot. Uh, there aren't a lot that... Well, a lot of the films that those were sort of a countering against were, you know, flighty films. So yeah. doing something that was dour and inca- like Italian neorealism mm. was after this whole spate of, uh, you know, basically propaganda films. About mm. how wonderful everything was, and so showing how bad everything was—that was the new way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with uh, what uh, Czech cinema was like at the time. Uh, well, the the fireman's ball uh, is a really great. Fil- it's about a fireman's ball. The local <laughs> firemen in a Czech town uh, are just throwing a party to celebrate themselves, and it's about how everything is. It's almost like a Christopher Guest film in a lot of ways. Just mm. everybody's a little bit of a buffoon. Nothing is really organized well. They try to. Uh, give a medal to a guy, but they didn't give really good instructions as to the logistics of how he's going to like walk down the aisle and pick up his medal. So somebody gives the wrong cue, the band strikes up, he walks down, they say, no, stop, 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 go back, go back, we need to do this right. And then and this old guy's like 80, kind of has to daughter back to his seat, and then they do it again, and right. he does it wrong again. Uh, there's a, And then, of course, during the ball, a fire breaks out, and because all the firemen are at the ball, the house burns down. And the better, the, yeah, the old man who, uh, and it's a snowy night that you know, as he's watching his, he's watching his house burn down. It's like I can't watch it. I can't watch my house burn down. So they pick up his chair and they turn him around. So he's yeah. facing away from it, and then he says, "I'm cold." So they bring him closer to the fire. <laughs> It, it, it's just, yeah, this kind of wickedly ironic film. I, I find that there's a lot of, of funny moments if you're really paying attention to something like The Fireman's Ball. Uh, the other Czech New Wave film I'm familiar with and saw actually kind of recently for the first time was Daisies, ah. uh, which is a wonderful film about two slobbish young women mm. who are not interested in following any kind of rules and they make a, a deal with each other right at the start of the film. Let's not just fo- let's not follow rules anymore. Yeah. Let's go out there and do whatever the hell we want. And they have this wonderful sense of humor about just stealing shit and overeating and smashing things. And the climax of the film is they come upon this gigantic feast that's been laid out for a bunch of rich people and they just stomp all over it and storm out. Sounds kind of like Pink Flamingos. It 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 has the similar it does have like a John Waters vibe kind of to anarchy. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and I feel like that sort of embracing of anarchy is not something you'd find in a lot of other, uh, a lot of other new waves from other countries. I recommend Daisies. <laughs> All right. Again, I, I don't have much to contribute here. I've been learning a lot just from listening to Whitney Seibel and from mm-hmm. listening uh, to you. So um, I hope that helps. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as we were just talking about, everyone's got mm-hmm. blind spots. Check New Wave is yeah, clearly I need, one of mine. I really need to see Closely Watch Trains. I've heard yeah, a lot of I've good things of good, about that. That one and Valerie and Week of Wonders and Fireman's Ball are the three I tend to hear the most about. Yeah. Uh, Eclipse, uh, the offshoot of 
the Criterion Collection yeah. has an entire box set of like lesser known Czech New Wave films. That's so cool. that that would be there. I always trust them. They curate very well. So I go to go to there. I think Daisy's is in that one. Uh, oh, here we go. I just found the box set. Yeah. Um, Return of the Prodigal Son, Capricious Summer, A Report on the Party and Guests, and Pearls of the Deep. Those are all films that I, I need to get to. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. So yeah, unfortunately, Daisies and the Fireman's Ball are the only ones I can really recommend wholeheartedly. Well, again, I think it's I think it's important that we be open about what we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, let's move on. That was a really good letter. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Oh, where's my letters page? It got away from me. You can uh, do it, Whitney. I believe in you. <laughs> here is a letter from Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Uh, dear Booz and Whitney, first of all, I want to thank you for the many hours of oh, thank you. Thank you for the many hours of podcast podcast content you have to have put out i came to you guys via whitney's appearance on the canon podcast and the rest is history oh wow that was a long time well, ago yeah. it, was, it was a couple of years back at this yeah. point yeah uh, amy nicholson was good enough to have me on her podcast once upon a time uh, to go back to a recent uh, listener letter about canadian cinema and tv perhaps i can shed some light on the subject i work in the industry albeit mostly in unscripted television so here's what i can apart impart to be officially considered a Canadian film. Yeah, people yeah we, asked, were, we were wondering about this. What yeah. was a Canadian film? And I, my solution was it was financed by Canadian dollars. Yeah. But that might not be the whole story. So, here. so um, to be officially considered a Canadian film, a certain percentage of the cast and crew has to be Canadian. Yeah. It has to be certified by the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission. Uh as being a genuine Canadian product, while a lot of the actors should be Canadian, it doesn't preclude bringing in an, Amer- an American, quote, ringer to yeah. bring some cred to the product, I, uh, e.g. Richard Dreyfus in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz or James Woods and Debbie Harry in Videodrome. Yeah. A lot of funding does come from the government, but in the case of television broadcasters, uh, television broadcasters are incentivized to create Canadian content, a.k.a. CanCon, <laughs> because they have a mandated amount of CanCon they have to air on a given day. Yeah. This does have loopholes, as many Canadians of a certain age will remember Heritage Minutes, which were 60 second... <laughs> I do remember these. I, I've oh, seen these. You've seen Heritage? Yeah, Canadian they're, they're, Heritage they're online. Minutes? Someone pointed my way to them because they're really wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Which were 60 second history shorts that were wedged in various places in the TV schedule to make up the difference. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's like in American cartoon shows uh, mm-hmm. when they started changing the laws to allow cartoons to market directly to children there was still a government mandate that a certain percentage of the show it was really low it was like five percent of the show Uh had to be educational content yeah so uh you watch something like she-ra princess of power and at the very end it's like and be sure not to do something dangerous with scissors and don't jump over power lines with your bikes don't jump over power lines with with your bikes came up a lot in those i wonder if someone died doing that and everyone was really paranoid for a while but yeah the bar was really really low but i've seen some of these american heritage minutes and Uh it's basically just they're, they're really fun like it's um you know when you're watching a biopic and every single thing a famous person does that people know about mm. gets telegraphed really hard and it's yeah. kind of embarrassing? But if you put all of that telegraphing in 60 seconds, it's funny. Yeah. And, oh, it's, yeah, and, you, are, and you are learning things. And so, like, there's one I saw about um, one of the guys who uh, created Superman and, like, how he just came up with all those ideas. Another one where the bear who inspired Winnie the Pooh and... Like, it was cute. Like, it was just a really... I, I bet if I saw them when I was a kid, I'd have a lot of, like, really did fond they, nostalgic memories of them. Did they interview the bear? No, it's it's little dramas. Oh, okay. So it's like it's like, <laughs> it's one, like, of the, it's like so one of the guys... Tell, who tell, went, tell us about how you played yeah. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's about, like, a soldier who, like, met the bear in, like, Canada. And, like, <laughs> okay. he thought the bear was cute and his name was Winnie or something like that. But, like, there was one where, like, a guy, like, who's totally dressed like Clark Kent is talking about this character that he's going to create. He's going to be some kind of... Super man, 
and then it's charming. It's totally charming. It's totally designed for kids. It's Siegel, and, Siegel and Schuster said that. N- not literally. Oh, no, yeah. it's a it's a it's a short and it's All fictionalized. Right. Oh, These yeah. aren't documentaries. All right. They're little tiny biopics that hit all the main bullet points in like 60 seconds. They're fun. What if I made a man who is super? <laughs> in any case, they're a delight and you can find mm-hmm. them online. Okay. Uh, uh, he also says uh, there are a lot of co-productions between companies in different countries. I remember as a kid, I felt like every Canadian cartoon was a co-product with France. Mm. Uh, the province of Quebec, that is the majority of French-speaking Canada, has its own film industry that is much more robust due to not having to compete as much with U.S. content. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we didn't brush on Quebecois cinema too much when we were giving our Canadian film recommendations. Uh, As for some suggestions for films besides the work of David Cronenberg, of course, I recommend Roadkill from 1989. Hmm. Uh, Last Night from 1998. We talked about Last Night. Uh, Jesus of Montreal from 1989. A Hmm. group of actors put on a passion play in Montreal that skirts traditional and transgressive secular and sacrilegious. I've seen Jesus of Montreal, and I do really like that one. Yeah. Uh, From 2010, Trigger. Two women reunite a decade after the breakup of their rock band. Uh, Seducing Dr. Lewis or The Grand Seduction from 2003. In order to get a plastic factory that will save the community, a fishing village in northern Quebec must band together to convince a doctor to stay. Hmm. Uh, The 20th Century, 2019. I remember when this one came out. Uh, The early life and rise to power of Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, reminiscent of the works of Guy Madden, and has a cross-gender and colorblind casting. Interesting. A Tanner Jouat, we talked about, the fast runner. Uh, Meatballs. 1979. Ah, oh, I didn't realize that was one Canadian. of Ivan Reitman's first films and Bill Murray's ah. first starring role. Screwball comedy set in underground, underdog summer camp. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that was Canadian. That was in heavy rotation here in America. And oh yeah, it was huge in America. I, that, helped, that helped make Bill Murray's film career. Yeah, and because the presence of Bill Murray made, I assumed it was American. So I, yeah, I've, same here. I've been schooled. Yeah, me too. Uh, 1982, The Gray Fox, the story of Bill Miner, the gentleman bandit, who in the twilight of his life and that of the Wild West commits the first train robbery in Canadian history. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. It might have actually been rather harrowing at the moment, but interesting factorial train, train, tidbit. Train, yeah. train robberies are romantic. Yeah. Uh, Starbuck, 2011. A hapless delivery man finds out that due to a mix-up at the spur bank where he made frequent donations, he is the father of 533 kids. Oh, yeah, this, that was remade was, as yeah, a Vince Vaughn movie, yeah. yeah. As a Delivery Man was the mm-hmm. title. It wasn't very good. I saw Delivery Man. Eh, it doesn't, there's mm-hmm. really nothing interesting about it. Uh, bon Cop, Bad Cop. We talked. We heard mm-hmm. about Bon Cop, Bad Cop. Uh, and Le Boys, a beer league hockey team, must come to their sponsor and favorite pub owner's aid after having to face off against a mobster's hockey team in order to save the bar. Okay, that that sounds awesome. <laughs> I really want to see what that one's called again. It's called Le Boys. Okay, I'm totally going to track that one down. Les Boys. I'm totally tracking that one down. That one sounds right up my alley. That sounds great. Hopefully this helps anyone who wants to get a quick jump into Canadian film. There are many more out here. This isn't as representative a list as I would have ideally liked. Writing it definitely showed some gaps in my knowledge, but I hope this leads someone on a deep dive into the world, weird world of Canadian cinema. Yeah. Thanks for reading and keep up the good work. Sincerely, Stephen G. Um, there's actually, like, I've been introduced to a bit more Canadian television lately. There's a streaming mm. service called Acorn TV. And if you have, oh, yeah. And if you go to Tubi.com or TubiTV.com, one of those. I think it's Tubi.tv, actually. It's not. I, you said that once and it's not. Oh, okay. I, I checked it and that was wrong. But in any case, I'm Tubi wrong. is a free streaming service. You watch it, it has some ads, but they're not too intrusive, actually. Mm. It's pretty good. And um, they have a deal with a lot of other, like, um, sort of smaller streaming services that you can access some of their content on there. And they actually have a lot of Canadian television. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been uh, sort of, ex- and some Canadian films as well, so I've been exploring a bit of it there. I'm also a big fan of, it's on Netflix, and I'm hardly the first one to this party, but um, if you've never seen the sitcom Kim's Convenience, it's a Canadian television series about uh, a, a convenience store run by a family of Korean immigrants. Uh, it is great. Like, it's really charming, it's really funny, it's really well-written, it's it's really, really good. So, yeah, there's a ton of great stuff coming out of Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and some of which I just learned about today. I'm totally going to check out Late Boys. Uh, let's, uh, let's do some I, more. Well, just one, one comment before we move on. Mm. Uh, we talked about Czech cinema, we talked about Canadian cinema, and we talked about a certain era of American cinema that only cinephiles tend to know about. Yeah. Uh, America's ignorance when it comes to international cinema is, in a weird way, a blessing. Because when you get into international cinema, when you something makes its way to the States and you get really into it, yeah. all of a sudden, when you start to do some research, you find that the globe is really much larger than you thought. Okay. And that's really exciting to discover. Now, it would be nicer if we just had those things all along. Yeah, I don't know if that's really... A, I think uh, that's more of like a silver lining than yeah. it is actually it being a good thing, but yeah. Well, just when, when you discover that the world is much larger and that they're all, you know, wonderful piles of international cinema to enjoy Mm -hmm. it's an exhilarating experience it most definitely is it's also interesting that if you fancy yourself again in america we have access mostly to american films and a lot of people grow up and maybe they've been exposed to some of the bigger american films and maybe they know a little bit about american history and then you go to uh, film school or you start researching this kind of stuff on your own and you realize oh my god there are all of these classics i haven't seen yet (laughs) that's so cool i love having more classics Mm. that's great Right, let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hi. Uh, greetings, highly acclaimed critics. I hope you gentlemen are doing well. As I write this, Dr. Google tells me it's going to be about 77 degrees out in your neck of the woods, which sounds lovely. I'm located just outside of Toronto. More Canadians. Oh, where the temperature is expected to reach a high of 86. That may not sound so bad, but it gets stupidly muggy up here. So factoring mm. in the humidex means it'll feel like 97. So my question, uh, so my question is, would you gents care to trade your weather conditions? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'm actually fine with it. Yeah, because you get snow up there. That's true. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we don't we, get snow. We live in Los Angeles, where it's frustratingly mild. Yeah, well, like, during, during the yeah. during the spring and the autumn, it's really wonderful, and then the heat waves in the summer suck. There and sometimes, and since global warming, we mm. we now get heat waves all the time. Sometimes, mm. and well, the last heat wave. We, remember when we had a heat wave on Halloween? Oh, that sucked. And your jack o' lanterns just melt on it your would, porch. It was disgu- <laughs> it was disgusting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we live in Southern California. We live right next to each other uh, in an area called West L.A. Mm. And um, yeah, we're, we're kind of close enough to the beach that we get a little bit of a breeze, but not a lot. Only, only on certain days can yeah. you smell the ocean. But um, yeah, it's just hot and muggy and miserable. Uh, the absolute worst place to live in terms of weather in Los Angeles County is a place called The Valley. <laughs> just The Valley. Yeah. San Fernando Valley. It's a San Fernando Valley. Everyone calls it the Valley. And um, yeah, it's just up the freeway from us. And if there's no traffic, it's a 10 minute drive. If there is traffic, it's a two hour drive. <laughs> and there's always traffic. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically, it's just an oven. It's just nothing but concrete baking in sun. And, and, it's, and it, it's where a lot of the smog would settle. So yeah. for many, for many, many years, you could go into the, the valley and you couldn't see. Yeah. Like the smog was so thick. Yeah. It's real, real awful. I, I know a lot of people who live there because it's cheaper to live there. Um, however, oh, yeah. rents are low. <laughs> however, you're running your air conditioner all the time. So it does add up eventually. But yeah, it's um, it's pretty brittle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, still, like, we're, we're not so bad. And uh, I'm fortunate we actually have air conditioning in this apartment. We're paying out the nose for it, but by God, we have it. And um, I'm not sure I could live otherwise. When I was in college, 
and we weren't paying. I was in the dorms, mm. and I don't think we had to pay for our like electricity. Uh, they were used to refer to my dorm as the icebox mm-hmm. because I would keep it cranked <laughs> as low as it possibly could. Nice. Fortunately, my roommate at the time was fine with it, so like it, it wasn't like a constant battle. But like, yeah, I like it cold, and I've grown up in Southern California, and sometimes I'm tempted to move away to a colder climate. But like, what would I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the industry is here, and like, yeah. But Toronto's always been tempting to me. Toronto, yeah. Toronto's always been. I've been to Toronto a few times. I like Toronto a lot. I I heard yeah. a lot about Toronto and Vancouver. Yeah. Growing up, that those were the cities you wanted to move to if you're an LA kid. I don't know why those two cities. I were think the there, ones there, that there's a lot of passed comp- among scuttlebutt. I think there's a lot of comp. I've been there a few times, mostly to the film festivals. Um, you know, it's kind of comparable in terms of just like how urbanized it is, like in terms of like the size of the city and everything mm. like that. So it's not this huge culture shock. They do have a lot of really good culture there. There are a lot of like movies and movie theaters and things and. Um, so yeah, I think it, would, it wouldn't be a too jarring a move. I don't know. One of these days, I'm just going to move to a small town and solve mysteries. <laughs> that's that's my fantasy. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. Move into a cabin. Are you a cabin or just like small town? Why not both? <laughs> okay, sure. It's good. Why not? I like uh, cabins. Anyway, we do have more letter here. Oh my! Uh, quite, I thought that quite, was quite it. A, no, quite a bit, in fact. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Um, Anthony says, "I wanted to revisit something that Bibbs brought up in one of your discussions about the film 1917. I recall his mentioning that one of the things that worked against the film was the convenience of this of certain story elements, such as when Lance Corporal Schofield decided to fill his canteen with milk early in the film. Bibbs pointed out that this action solves a puzzle later in the movie, just like in a video game where you pick up an item that's needed to get past a later point and to continue the story." Right. I thought Bibb's observation was totally on the money, but I found myself forgiving the film anyway. The thing is, I don't know why I was willing to forgive this plot contrivance. This changed when I watched Christ- Christoph Gans' Silent Hill the other day. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, which is average. Uh, in, <laughs> really well shot. Can we agree on that? Fine. Good Great fo- looking horror movie. Good photography. Weird, though. Yeah. It's a weird adaptation it, of a it weird takes, game. It takes place in two separate dimensions, and in one of the dimensions, half of the time everything's haunted, I, and they but kind not of, in the other dimension. And they kind and, of misinterpreted the metaphor behind that, but let's see what's anyway, going on um, in the letter here before I move on to that. Uh, in the film, Rhonda Mitchell, who plays the protagonist Rose, does all sorts of things that no rational human being would do. The first example would be when she's pulled over, over by a traffic cop. The film doesn't suggest that she's a fugitive or that she's even hiding several kilos of cocaine in her car, so why does she endanger her child who's riding with her by speeding off when the cop approaches her vehicle? The answer is that this is the sort of thing you probably need in a video game so you can advance the story (laughs) the same applies in a later sequence when rose is in a school bathroom and discovers a decaying corpse held up by barbed wire graffiti on the wall points to the corpse with the words dare you dare you double dare you so naturally rose reaches through the barbed wire to extract a broken keepsake lodged around the lodged in the rotting corpse's mouth that she couldn't possibly have seen from where she was standing how did she know to put her fingers in a dead body's mouth And why does she insist on later that the keepsake she pulled from it is a clue to the whereabouts of her missing child? Because video game, that's why. Rose does all sorts of things like this throughout the movie, picking up objects that become useful in puzzles later in the film and chasing after a strange little girl, girl, even when it means crossing a massive hole in the floor that could mean her plummeting to her death. These, these are things that you would expect be expected to do in a video game to progress the story because you need to perform mm-hmm. actions. Well, and also uh, the horror games are sort of challenging you to do things that are uncomfortable or scary. Kind of scary. So, yeah. like, yeah, that's part of the intensity of yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, the film, though, offers no good explanations for anything she does other than being really determined to locate her daughter. Her actions are those of an irrational person who has no sense of self-reservation. In short, she behaves to serve the plot with any ad- adherence to, without any adherence to logic. Compare this with 1917. Schofield is on a dangerous mission through no man's land and has only the faintest ideas of what's behind enemy lines. When he sees the bucket of milk at the farm and realizes he has an empty canteen, it totally makes sense for him to fill it because he'll probably want to have milk later in the mission. That's true. 
He might not get another chance to fill his canteen later, so on taking advantage of this opportunity would be the sensible thing to do. While this act does indeed solve a puzzle later in the film, in the context of Schofield's mission and taking into account the need for sustenance, his taking milk seems entirely reasonable, something that a clear-thinking person would and should do under those circumstances. I guess I should thank Christophe Jans for helping clear up why I forgave a puzzle-solving bit in one film, but not the myriad of completely logic-defying actions in another. It comes down to context. If there's no discernible reason for characters to perform certain actions given their particular circumstances in the film, uh, then the only conclusion is the audience can draw is that they're doing these for the sake of advancing the plot. In a video game, doing bizarre things, such as sticking your fingers in every nook and cranny you can find, is completely normal and necessary to make progress in the narrative. You can kill a person, and they turn into a steak, and you eat the steak, and somehow you're stronger. That's the way it works in video games. Well, it works in some video games. I'm, I'm, that's, that's not how it works in, like, Tetris. I, but yeah. I, can, I can vomit spit bubbles around a monster, and then that monster trapped in my spit bubble can be slammed against a wall, and it turns into fruit. It's true. And, and these, I eat, are, these are things. And I eat that fruit and the word extra appears above my head. <laughs> video game logic yeah. is not logic. Wow. Depends on the video game. Uh, performing the same actions in a movie without proper setup it just comes off as total lunacy. Those are my conclusions. Please feel free to agree or disagree. Wishing you continued success with your podcast, Anthony. Anthony, thank you very, very much. That is an excellent point for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there's something that Whitney and I have been espousing for a long time, which is that you can learn a lot from watching good movies, but mm. you can learn even more from watching bad ones. Absolutely. So once you have a general sense of what works in a movie, when you're watching a bad movie, you're not just thinking about like, oh, 1917 did something kind of weird, and maybe I'm distracted by it, maybe I'm not. But when you see a movie completely just whiff it, <laughs> just go completely full bore on it and mm. fail miserably, all of a sudden it becomes abundantly clear why this thing stood out. And you're right. In 1917, there is actually a legitimate motivation to collect drinkable fluids in a canteen. During a, in a battlefield scenario. That's totally, totally true. It's just the way that the movie kind of pauses to highlight that, and then it does kind of, it's the only way to solve a puzzle later, just makes it kind of fall into this category. But it's not the biggest problem with the movie. The movie's actually good. I just want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. I have some criticisms, but it's good. It does feel like a video game. Silent Hill is an interesting example of a movie, though, because a lot of people point to Silent Hill as one of the quote-unquote good video game movies. I disagree it, with that. It isn't, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the better ones, but that doesn't mean it's a good one. And the reason why it's better is because it's actually really handsomely produced and there's a lot of really frightening imagery in it, but it doesn't make any sense. And to be fair, in some respects, neither does the game it's based on. Uh, the Silent Hill video games are very surrealist in a lot of ways, and they operate in the terms of um, sort of... Um, it's like dream logic. A lot of dream mm. logic, a lot of uh, sort of like dramatic expressionism. Um, and so as a result, these things make sense for a story that may or may not entirely be taking place in someone's head, much like the movie Jacob's Ladder, which was a huge impact on Silent Hill and its design. Okay. Um, much like they have like different states of dreaming and different kinds of horrors and what they represent to the protagonist. The movie understands that Silent Hill did weird stuff. I don't think it understood why it did weird stuff. Hmm. I don't think they understood like, okay, yeah, the characters perform actions that don't make a lot of logical sense, but they don't understand the emotional sense that they make or the uh, psychological sense mm -hmm. that they make. Um, one key example of this is in the video game Silent Hill 2, which is probably the most iconic film, uh, sorry, video game in the series. Silent Hill 2 is about a widower who receives a letter from his dead wife to come meet at their special place in Silent Hill. And he can't even remember what that place is. So he's got to search around everywhere they've ever been together 
okay. in order to sort of solve this mystery. And when he gets there, the town is shrouded in mist, and every once in a while, monsters are around. And over the course of the film, he runs into... A, I'm sorry. I keep saying film because I'm a film critic. Over yeah. the course of the game, he runs into a variety of monstrous things that represent aspects of his psyche. For example, you know, his wife died um, in a hospital, if memory serves, and he's been a widower for a long time. And so when there are demons that look like nurses, they are highly sexualized. Mm. They're monstrous, but they have, you know, very curvaceous proportions and they're very, uh, like they're, a lot of cleavage. Yeah, and the, Yeah. It's a, it's a creepy image, but it represents not only his connection between uh, uh, being married and death, but also his, his libido, which is long since annihilated. Uh, the uh, most popular uh, villain of the game, Pyramid Head, is this incredibly strong, muscular, virile monster with a giant sword that's just the biggest penis yeah, ever. I was about to say, that's a phallic symbol right yeah. there. This, these are supposed to represent... I've, I've seen that guy at cons. Yeah, like it's a popular okay. cosplay thing. And um, these things represent things in the subconscious of a, a, a widower's mind. Hmm. When you change the protagonist to a seemingly happily married woman who doesn't have hang-ups about death at hospitals and her own masculine virility... Those images are still scary, but they no longer make sense. The symbolism is gone. The symbolism mm -hmm. is just annihilated. You have the symbol, but mm -hmm. not the ism. There's nothing like that actually like cues you into what mm -hmm. it refers to and why it is significant. And so the Silent Hill movie has all of these elements from the game, but they no longer make sense. So when you apply all of these video game storytelling ideas, some of which are just there to be creepy in their own right, but they no longer have any power. Mm -hmm. So... It's one of those movies that is just good enough that I think it tricks us into thinking it's actually good, when in actuality it's just it's a like handsomely a, produced bad movie. It's pr pretty badly written film. For, um, that's my take. Yeah. I think uh, when when people compare films to video games, it's typically a negative criticism. Uh, this film felt like a video game, and that is and that is it. It feels like it's unengaging in a certain sort of way. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I I don't play a lot of the the bigger video games, the games that gamers play. I play stuff like Tetris, so I I, yeah. I don't really. You're a retro like, gamer. Retro. I'm a, an arcader. Somebody referred yeah. to me as an arcader, and I'll take that. But uh, I think the reason why it's difficult to get uh, video games and movies kind of copacetic with one another is because video games are predicated on action. Uh, Immediacy. They're, you're yeah. all in the moment. Yeah. Well, uh, they are an interactive medium, and in order to progress uh, the story or the game, you have to perform actions, yeah. and those actions are the central contrivance of a video game. Yeah. Uh, those actions are what makes it a game as opposed to a film. Yeah. And as such, uh, a video game is going to be full of all of these, uh, I call them contrivances, there's probably a better word, uh, just mechanics. Where you have, where, you, where word, you, yeah. you have to manipulate things in order to progress. You can't construct a uh, film that way because then there would be just too many climaxes. There'd be too much action. Yeah, the movie There's, just is like a Rube Goldberg. Exactly, it's just and, one thing and I think after another. and I think if yeah, it was just like a bunch of actions where people are just doing things and solving puzzles and getting to the end, mm. it would, might make a good video game, but it wouldn't make a good feature film. Yeah, and a lot of video games, like think about like some of the better video games that people consider mm. like cinematics. Think of something like Uncharted. Um, which is it's already like a, a, it's an Indiana Jones knockoff. Yeah, right? basically, it's a modern day thing. But basically, um, and th that already has one strike against it because whenever you make that movie, and they've been trying for years, it's gonna feel like a knockoff of Indiana Jones because it is. Hmm. But when you think about the way, actually, that's not kind of not the best example because there are long pauses in that game for character development, and that was kind of my point. 
a lot of video well, games, when, like when the Call of Duty games, When you say there are long pauses for character development, though, is, is that something that the player plays, or is that like a, a, a little film bit. that's set aside from the game? A, a little bit of both, actually. Okay. Because um, like those, those little, little cutscenes are essentially just mini-movies sometimes, that, that aren't yes. really part of the game. And sometimes they're interactive mm-hmm. elements of it that they actually want you to mm-hmm. sort of... Like pay attention still, and hit a button well, still feel like or... still feel like you're actually like working within the world. For example, there's a really cute one in um, one of the later Uncharted games where... There's the protagonist Drake and his wife, whose name I forget, and mm. they, you know, they met in the first game, and they had, and will they or won't they? Now they're married. There's actually a really sweet scene that's just them, and he's given up adventuring, and she's got her day job, and they're happy, but it, it's a little listless. It's a little just boring, and so they try to dramatize how nice, but kind of banal their life is, and so there's a whole extended sequence, long sequence, of them talking about their day. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, in order to show that he's just a little restless, uh, it, they have a they decide to decide who's going to do the dishes based on who can r- rack up the most points in a level of Crash Bandicoot. So <laughs> there's a level of Crash yeah, this, Bandicoot. This sounds like the worst game imaginable. It, it kind of yeah. is. It, it, it is. It's not actually because no. the whole thing is while you're playing this game of Crash Bandicoot, you're having a conversation with your wife about how well you're doing. Okay. So you feel like you're part of the scene, but the scene is playing out basically the way it would anyway. Mm-hmm. So actually Uncharted is a bad example because they do care about a lot about character development. But if you look at something like, I don't know, Halo, um, which is, which is not, like, hasn't been a new one in a while, but anyway. It's, but it, it, it's massively complicated, isn't it? Not, not for you, maybe, because you're not like into this level of gaming, but in actuality, like, not really. But it's like hundreds of hours to complete. And... Mm, depends on the game. But right. uh, uh, in any case, a lot of it, yeah, there are certain plot points that show up, but I'd say about 92% of the gameplay is you just fighting aliens. <laughs> That's it. It's very fun, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that, a lot of different challenges and everything, but if a movie was nothing but the action sequence in Avengers where they're just beating up, like, faceless aliens Mm. who have no character, it would get boring. Yeah. Arguably gets boring at the end of the movie, but, like, it would really get boring if there was 92% of the film was just that. Movies need to actually capture your attention and your mind uh, through... Char- drama character and story yeah, and, yeah character drama story themes you know the, it's not constantly ne- engage you the film is interacting with your brain yeah, and the not a- your hands the action is uh just sort of icing on the cake in that case yeah in, in terms of a film uh action is something you put on top of what's really at the heart of it which is the tone the theme characters and story yeah uh in games i think it's the other way around the action is the thing that's in the center and character and story are the things that you build around it um and there's some games that are nothing but story there are some games okay. that are nothing but like soap operatic, you know, romance, storytelling, whatever. But that's mm. not the kind of games that typically get made into movies. So it still applies. There's a lot of exceptions to the rule. But um, in any case, when you think about like, I don't know, like take the Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the best action movies ever made. Mm. Pluck out the action sequences. Just take the action sequence and make them either like super short if they're absolutely necessary to the plot or remove them and just tell that plot point another way. Guess what? It's still a rollicking film. <laughs> it still bounces across the, the globe. People mm-hmm. still die. There's still a lot of stakes involved. So that story works regardless of the action. But in a video game, you need the action. The action comes first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget where I was going with this. But yeah, my point is... is uh, uh, Video games tell stories differently, especially the video games that are popular enough to warrant Hollywood being interested in making movies about mm-hmm. 
Um, and um, so, yeah, so well, like, just, so logic isn't the most fundamental thing; yeah. it's the immediacy of the experience. Exactly, and I think the people who are turning these games into movies don't understand that. They don't understand just sort of the fundamental difference between a game and a film. Mm-hmm. They usually, uh, if if they even look at the game at all, yeah. sometimes they'll just take sort of popular moments and put them in a screenplay and hope yeah. it works out as a film. Yeah, somehow. They're, they're just pulling out the story yeah. and ignoring all the things that made it work as a game. And them, or you or can't they're do that or they're trying that. to turn it into a film, but they're trying to turn it into like so, a story that they're not. From what it seems like, maybe a story they're not so interested in, or a story they think won't work as a film, so they alter it into something a little bit more film-like, and that of course just pisses off fans of the game because things yeah. have been altered now. Street Fighter the movie is a perfect example yeah. of this. Where yeah. honestly, like, there's... That, that's the best thing you could do with that story. I mean, come on. Yeah, the... I think they did crackerjack no, job. I don't think they writing did. a screenplay of Street Fighter. I don't think they did. I think here's what you need for Street Fighter the movie. Hmm. There are street fights. Street fighting, yeah. <laughs> That's it. We've had two live action Street Fighter movies. Neither of them were about street fights. It's a fighting tournament movie. Just rip off Bloodsport or Enter the Dragon yeah. or Master the Flying Guillotine. No one wants anything else. Okay? That's all, all this is. They go the to games a place. supposed to be anyway. They go to a place. People fight each other. Between the fights, there's some personal drama and intrigue. And mm. in the end, the person with the biggest beef against Bison fights Bison. Done. Make the fights good. Mm. Then you're done. You've made one of the best action movies of the year. That's all you need to fucking do. But they're always trying to like, well, that's not enough. We need to change these characters around and make, um, you know, this peaceful guru character into a mad scientist who makes a Brazilian monster for no reason. And I'm like, Shut, knock it off. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, and we, you know what? We got a letter during the show. <gasps> we have and, to read it. And when we get a letter during the show, we have to read this, it. I think so this is here the first time that's actually happened. Uh, well, here we are. Oh my God, here, let's do it. And it's a letter from Humphrey Moose. Hi, Humphrey Moose. Hello, Humphrey Moose. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Uh, as always, love the show. Uh, you are my go-to critics, and I wanted to say thank you for what you do. It's important and not just... A, and it's not just a scream in the void, my best to you both. <laughs> I only ever aspire to not be a scream in the void. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, kind of all you can hope for, really. Yeah, I've I've been really interested in your Firefly reviews. I don't always agree, but typically an issue of scale rather than scope. Uh, but one thing from the final episode review struck me. The concept of the contract with the audience and how much shows can evolve. You mentioned that early on a show should set its tone and be and it shouldn't significantly deviate. And while I disagree with you on Firefly, I think that show set its tone for how dark and violent it can get in the pilot and in the train job. Mm. But that's a different discussion. But it got me thinking. How much latitude do we give a show and by extension a whole narrative to grow over time? Speaking your language, Deep Space Nine is a show that has some rather dramatic shifts in tone over its seven years, including... uh, including most of all the themes and tones that you decried Firefly for. And yet I don't think you would suggest that it broke its contract. So I'm curious in what ways you feel the contract can be broken and can't support the growth of a narrative. Whitney mentioned that mentioned the kids program where the bakery gets robbed is breaking the contract, which is obvious, but what are some good examples, good and bad, or some examples, good and bad of contracts that aren't obvious hyperbole. And not relating to Firefly, I'm trying to make you have that discussion. It's time to hit the show and the concept where it came up. Uh, Also, since you primarily watched uh, film and canceled shows, which are, quote, shorter form entertainment compared to large sprawling narratives, Hmm. do you think that your perception of how rigid a narrative should be may be skewed? Uh, As always, love the podcast and art is inherently political. Anyone who says (laughs) otherwise is selling something. Sincerely, Humphrey Moose. I agree, Humphrey Moose, on a lot of your points. Um, Couple of things. Uh, first off, that's that uh, that last point um, mm. that uh, Whitney and I have spent a lot of the last 
four or five years of our lives watching television series that lasted only one season or much less. And that's a lot of the media we've consumed, that hmm. and movies. And But that doesn't mean we're not familiar with long-form television or that we don't also hmm. watch long-form television. It mostly means we don't have an opportunity to go on about it very much. Yeah. Um, I do try to watch other TV. I don't watch every hit show. Uh, but, you know, I watched Game of Thrones when it was on. I watched Breaking Bad. Um, I watch a lot of uh, long-form anime yeah. um, and, and other things as well. So um, I don't think it entirely skews me, but I think what Cancel Too Soon has done is make me hyper-aware of how useful it is. And even though it's not mm. the only factor... Um, how important it can be to set a good foundation for a series later. Yeah, we, we're looking at the first floor being built every time we watch a, a season on Cancel Too Soon. Yeah. And we are now, I think, hyper fixated on how uh, how things are establishing themselves. Hmm. Uh, whether or not Firefly would have gotten better and better and better, like season four was the good season of Firefly. Right. Uh, it, it, that's only academic at this point. All we know is that they're building something and all we can f uh, talk about is how well they would have gone from here. Yeah. And... You, you mentioned Deep Space Nine. You watched the first season of Deep Space Nine. There's a lot of badly written episodes in the sure. first season of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. The one, one where they all are, are a board game or or <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin is in it. You yeah, know, there, there's, there's some, some wacky ones. Re really strange yeah. ideas in that first season. But I think it didn't break any kind of contract because that show set out to be a little bit more gritty. Yeah. And it was about these sort of uh, sociopolitical and religious conflicts in a world where uh, that in previous shows has, had declared that those things were sort of at an end. Yeah, Deep Space Nine takes place on a space station right mm. after a really horrifying occupation mm. of a planet called Bay uh by a a warring species called the Cardassians and at the beginning of the film I'm the beginning of the series got to keep doing that <laughs> at the beginning of the series um the conflict is over but Bajor is still rebuilding itself and there's a lot of leftover animosities and the space station kind of feels a lot like Vienna in the movie The Third Man where mm. it's like after World War II and everything about the the city is like in flux and rebuilding and full of black market stuff and um, and I feel like although the series got darker over time, the stage was set for that because we're the whole thing kind of takes place in the aftermath of a war. Mm -hmm. And the idea that war could break out again is something that is a serious concern throughout the yeah. series. Yeah. So it comes to a head and it happens, but it's not shocking. And I feel like it happens over a gradual enough amount of time that we feel kind of led into it naturally. Yeah, the, the the episodes where they break the contract are when they get kind of silly. The, the baseball yeah. episode. The baseball uh, episode yeah. is pretty fucking dumb. Um, <laughs> it's like, we're in the good middle of... silly episodes of Deep Space well, Nine, and of, but And of course, the, those, those episodes serve a function in the grander narrative to sort of break tension, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't feel like something like Deep Space Nine did break a contract. Uh, no. my, my issue with Fireflies, I repeated ad nauseum, was uh, By that... the way, that podcast, Out of Gas, is on our Patreon page patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh even for one dollar a month you get access to all of those episodes mm -hmm. and we just finished doing the series proper and we're eventually going to get into the comic books and movie um mm -hmm. so now you know the baseline sorry that, that's why we're talking about firefly yeah. but but the issue i had with firefly is that uh it had kind of a shaky start and there was just too many things in it and uh in terms of trying to make it sort of a serious action show they didn't do that hard enough because there was so much jokey material and the tone became really, really light yep. in certain episodes, uh, like almost throughout. There was the one where uh, we met 
uh, Malcolm out in the middle of the desert and he's naked. And that's that's almost a comedy episode. It is a comedy episode. Yeah, and yeah, there's, a, there's a few good dramatic beats in it, but it's mostly a comedy uh, and, and I feel like that's uh, one of the stronger episodes because they actually it had a consistent tone throughout. It didn't break sort of what the premise was going to be, that these guys are kind of scoundrels and thieves. And there's even a little bit of a, a Old West aspect because he he's out in the middle of a desert. Yeah. But yeah, there were occasional uh, scenes throughout the entire series where things got really too dark too quickly and that clashed with a tone. I don't think it mm-hmm. broke a contract necessarily. I think it just never laid strong groundwork. That may be more what I was going for. Mm-hmm. The contract with the audience is a phrase I use and I don't know where I got it from. I've used it for so long now. Mm-hmm. Um, where at the start of a story, whether it's a novel or a movie or a TV series, and depending how long it is, you get a little bit more time to do it, mm-hmm. uh, is at the beginning of a story, you tell the audience what the story is going to be. Not the whole plot, but you tell them what you can expect from this. And then if towards the end of the story or maybe halfway through, you completely do something that completely shatters the foundation, the sort of like, welcome to this world. Here's what you can expect. If you break that, it's understandable for an audience to turn on you. Um, It happens all the time. However, it can work. Mm. And sometimes it works um, in an unexpected way. Probably the best example I can think of of a contract with an audience being broken and an audience going, yay, mm. uh, is the soap opera Dark Shadows. <laughs> uh, Dark Shadows is a daytime TV soap opera that developed a huge cult following and eventually led to actually a really good uh, like short-lived primetime series that we reviewed on Cancel Too Soon a couple years ago. From the, from the 90s, yeah. And uh, Tim Burton did a satirical take on it um, at, about 10 years ago, which is actually better than people give it credit for. Like it's, I, I like that movie. It's actually. hardly Burton's best film by any stretch, but mm. it's entertaining and it's a pretty spry um, sort of satire of soap operas, but that's a medium people aren't that familiar with anymore. But in any case, Dark Shadows started as this kind of gothic and gloomy daytime soap opera that, you know, had its sort of uh, antecedents in like the work of the Brontes or mm. whatever. And about, I'm trying to remember the exact number. It's a lot though. It's like 90 episodes in. Mm. Now there's a vampire. Yeah, it turns out there's a vampire in the now, show. It's it was always a bit gothic, but there was never anything that supernatural in it. And now all of a sudden, not only is there a vampire, he's the protagonist now. And all of a sudden, it clicks better. Like you see some <laughs> like of the episodes, people liked the show better yeah. after they just changed it. Before Barnabas Collins shows up, like it, it's just kind of like an interesting, weird show. And then all of a sudden, well, yeah, this should be a vampire show. Why were there vampires in this before? That That's so much more what this should have been. Mm. So sometimes doing something really wild makes everything click into place. Um, I think Twin Peaks got away with this a few times. Where, well, uh, Twin Peaks was sort of a, almost a work of surrealism. So it's okay. true, but there, like, there wasn't like so st- steady a contract to break. Maybe not, but I do think that when the dream sequence happened in like episode three, it was really fucking weird and it was weirder than anything we'd seen so far. And yet everyone's like, cool, let's do this. Apparently it's a supernatural show. Let's, I'm, the, I'm in. Whatever you got, like it's fine. Um, so when it comes to something like Firefly, where our argument was in the last uh, episode of the show, Objects in Space, that the villain of that piece was so disturbingly evil mm. that it ceased to be entertaining. Yeah, he's a threat. No one's denying that, but, but it's not fun to watch right now. It's no. just unpleasant. 
And maybe that's not breaking the contract with the audience, but it's pushing it too far. And we've seen that before, like episodes of Game of Thrones, where all of a sudden characters who are despicable do something that's so repugnant mm. that you're just like, why did we even, did we need that? And the answer, by the way, was no, most there, of the time. Isn't there like a, a sexual assault on a corpse or some, some really twisted There's shit some in that twisted, show? I'm yeah. not going to go into it. There's some twisted shit in that show. Mm. And some of it is arguably necessary for plot. Most of it isn't, and well, a lot of it, especially to, towards the end, is basically just trying to shock you yeah. into like. Well, that's always paying been, attention. It's always been HBO's mo, though. A we, lot of the time, we, yeah. we can get away with saying the f word every every second, so we're going to do it. Yeah, we, we can show boobs now. So look, here's a bunch of boobs. Like, well, yeah. does that make the show better? Yes, it does. Okay, uh, HBO, if you say so. Jesus Christ! Please stop hitting me with boobs. <laughs> I feel like that's what they're doing. They're putting the F word and boobs on sticks and like shoving them in my face. Oh, that's 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 HBO in the '90s in particular. Well, that's I don't true, really. Yeah. Well, anyway. and like Deadwood was that way. It's like, look, we have an F word. We're gonna brand it on your face every mm. second. Well, remember the remember the prison series Oz that they did? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which was just by the way, J.K. Simmons is terrifying in that series. Um, but yeah, it's about like this maximum security prison and uh, like the life, floors, life therein, and like the 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 walls are green, so they call it Oz. That's just the whole thing. But. Um, yeah, it's it's. I remember it being a really good show. I haven't watched it in a really long time, but man, the fact that we're HBO and we can show horrible fucking things happening in prison mm. was kind of the only reason that show existed. And then on top of that, it happened to be very well written. But it's also the only reason the show existed. Hey, Luca! Oh, Luca's on the table. Luca, you want a podcast with us, buddy? Hey, kitty, I'm taking you off the table. Oh no! I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cradle Luca for the rest. It's lunchtime. Feed me. I we got to read one more letter, buddy. Okay, one we more. Read letter. One more letter, and then we'll feed you. Hold on, I got. This is gonna be harder to do because I have a cat in my lap now. Mm, harder or better? <laughs> um, here is a letter from boo 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 adamantium. Ooh. From the, the fictional metal from the Marvel Universe. Uh, <laughs> Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McSee. Uh, that's that's if you want to yeah. a little jaunty, a little more brevity. I feel uh, I, I made the best slash worst choice in a long time and finally subscribed to your Patreon. Uh, I say best slash worst because I love your content so much and I've absolutely fallen in love with all our yesterdays. And as a result of catching up in about a week, I'm having binge withdrawal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you combined your podcast talents with Star Trek and it's great. Uh, if anybody out there likes Bibbs and Whitney, I like Bibbs and Whitney and I like Star Trek and I like Star Trek. And if you can afford it, you owe it to yourself to subscribe to their Patreon. You will not regret it. I promise. That is not why we picked this letter, but it is. <laughs> No, very nice no, no. thank you so much all our yesterday hey 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 come on guys i'll feed you in a minute if i put the cat um, down and they start just, fighting just it's still not quite your lunch time you got another minute um uh in any case all our yesterdays is a podcast on our patreon where we're reviewing every single episode of star trek ever in mm. production order one episode per podcast and we're about halfway through season two of the original series mm. right now and uh yeah there's a lot to catch up on already, mm -hmm. and apparently you can catch up on it real fast. I'm yeah. sorry about that. Okay. Well, and uh, anyway, Adamantium continues. Uh, so that said, uh, this isn't all our yesterday's letter. I think a big part of what I love about your takes on Star Trek is that they differ a lot from a lot of the consensus, and makes me rethink how I feel or remember about Star Trek. My dad is basically Scott Mance. Uh, <laughs> I grew up on Trek through the guise of a kid that grew up on the reruns and who saw Wrath of Khan 17 times in theaters, so my memories as a kid of TOS are basically double nostalgia goggles. So it's fun to see those things challenged. I hope... Uh, 
You keep getting Scott on as well because you're definitely something of a tramvirant. Matt, Mance is the McCoy, all heart. Bibbs, you're definitely the Spock, and Whitney, you're Kirk. Well, of course I am. Wow, I think we, I think we can all. I know, I don't. I think Scott would prefer to be Kirk, but yeah. I can, I can totally I think, see well, this. I think we all prefer to be Kirk. But, no, uh, I'd prefer to be Spock. I feel good right. about this. And uh, and I you get find to live for two hundred years. You find awesome. synthesis and make a middle ground, and things get heated. <laughs> But you still respect each other, and that's great to see, as fandoms, unfortunately, don't always achieve that. Trekkies, at least old-world Trekkies, yeah, have o- always been mu- much better. Like, there's always been debates and arguments about, you know, what counts as canon and how technologies work and what Spock would really say. But it's always had sort of a good-natured debate tone to it. Yeah, we all enjoy the same show. We, yeah, we're like, getting different things. Like, no- nobody's coming to blows over it, and uh, yeah. there's there's not a lot of toxicity in old world tricky I don't know about that yeah. but I, I don't know about that so okay. I can't say yeah, I'm sure there are people as, who as disagree somebody, with that as somebody who's been to a bunch of cons and stuff I went to like six Star Trek yeah. conventions as a youth yeah. anyway uh, I have a question for you regarding the episode Charlie X I think Whitney pointed out that Charlie X is the incel episode I'm curious how much you think DC Fontana as the most prominent female writer on the original series may have affected the episode it clearly exists within a sexist milieu take a drink and possibly <laughs> do, he wrote that by the way yeah. take a drink and possibly doesn't always know, know it's the incel episode but I find the fact that both Yeoman Rand and supposedly infamous uh, womanizer Kirk scolds Charlie X telling him directly women are not his playthings and must be respected and somewhat powerful for the time. Considering this in direct contrast with jerk evil Kirk assaulting Yeoman Rand or yep. Khan gaslighting and beating McGivers and the show and the show not taking time to say that's not okay, it seems to me that Charlie X is a rather progressive episode of Star Trek for the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be a long letter, so... Uh, just one more thing and I'm going to wrap up. One suggestion for all our yesterdays. Mm. Having a Futurama corner <laughs> or pop culture corner might be a fun bit to add. This episode actually directly inspired these five movies or these episodes of shows you love. This oh, occurred okay. to me because I'm listening to your podcast and I realized that literally every episode of Futurama, at least during its first Fox run, has some Star, Star Trek corollary. This is true. The people who write Star, uh, Futurama are... Huge Trekkies. Uh, yeah, openly Trekkies, and will say that yeah. they're taking things from That's Star a good Trek point. Episodes. We've tried to mention that when it's significant, but yeah, yeah we can probably... We, I, I can, I'll try to remember that. It's yeah. hard to, considering all the stuff we got to do, but I'll try to remember that. Yeah, I was, always, I was always aware of the references, but it's feeling even more stark now. Uh, even when it's something simple like the sound of doors <laughs> opening, uh, Cloplock, or the Melvar episode, that's the one where... Uh, Hmm. The original cast of Star Trek oh, yeah. appears in the show. That's a classic. Uh, the brain slugs, the episode where the planet's being destroyed by in a straight line. Characters like Zap Brannigan, who's clearly clearly clear, Shatner Sh- as yeah. Kirk. Yeah, that that, yeah. that was the the gag. What the actual the, the direction of for the yeah. character. What if Captain Kirk was hmm. William Shatner? Or yeah. one-offs like the neutral people. You can draw a straight line from any episode of T- uh, T.O. TOS or TNG are on two episode any event of Futurama just about. Anyway, fun idea. Live long and prosper. Adamantium. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, all our yesterdays is our Star Trek podcast, and one of the things that we've discovered is that Star Trek um, is considered a very progressive show for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also was not in some ways. Uh, yeah, it, there, there was there was a lot, a, many episodes, and we're about to talk about uh, Harry Mudd on, a, on our next episode, uh, that were just brazenly sexist. Yep. Like, like openly con- so from like, the construct onward, not, like, not not just had sexist characters in them. Like you could maybe, if you wanted to, argue that the con episode was one with which had a sexist character in it, but it's not mm. a sexist episode. If you wanted to go down that route, that's a debate uh, one could have. I, yeah. I'm not sure I'm on that side, but yeah. But given what we've seen throughout Star Trek as a whole, most for the most part, it's a pretty sexist program. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot given, of stuff. Given, you know, there's a lot of stuff about how women are different and they're more, you know, and more how, emotional than men. Yeah, yeah. like, and it, it's frankly just offensive, and it's hard to watch some of the older episodes. And what we're discovering as we go on is that there's a lot of famous episodes of Star Trek that we're kind of grandfathering in not just like the show, but also previous interpretations of the show. And we're not really questioning them anymore. And so one of the most fun episodes we've done is we did an episode called the city on the edge of forever, Mm -hmm. which is considered not just one of the best Star Trek episodes. Many people consider it the best Star Trek episode of any series, right? Which would make it one of the best episodes of television period. Mm. And it's a show that, frankly, I had never heard questioned before. It was just sort of unilaterally considered great. And when I watched it for the second time, I saw it many years ago and I watched it again now, I realized there's actually a lot of things I don't like about that episode. And you and Scott Mance come from this older uh, uh, sort of Trek fandom well, where this, this we, show is kind of unassailable. You know, we've, we've seen it a lot of times yeah. and we've had uh, plenty of opportunity to reinforce our single interpretation. Yeah, but and whether I'm right or wrong... I think I'm right, but whether I'm right or wrong, (laughs) being able to challenge a lot of ideas that I think otherwise a lot of Star Trek podcasts would have gone, and this is great, and people would have gone, yes, and then they would have moved on, or maybe talked about how great it was. And it was, I think, very interesting to be able to look at some of these things with fresher eyes Mm -hmm. and say, okay, but what if it's not? And what if it has all of these problems? And what if the opening of the episode is a pretty flimsy excuse to get the action started? And what if uh, the episode is really just bending over backwards in order to kill this female character when actuality and due to sci-fi logic, there's a ton of other solutions to this really simple problem? It's a conversation that we had, and mm. I, I'm sure you feel that I lost the uh, the debate, but well, I, I, I think, liked having it. I, I think it was two on one. You had me and Scott coming at like slightly different angles of defense. Yeah, and so yeah, we we were just sort of chip, chipping away at you. I don't I don't say you know somebody won or somebody was right. No, or no, wrong, no. I'm just but, saying uh, like I'm sure I'm sure your opinion on the episode is largely unchanged. Is my point, and but well, then again, you, so was mine. Yeah, so well, and it's been an interesting conversation. Scott even admitted, wait a minute, in the future they would have safety needles. Like the, yeah. the whole idea of, of McCoy accidentally injecting himself with insanity drugs is a yeah. little bit dumb. Yeah, it's really forced. And mm. so there's a lot of things about the episode that maybe instead of just putting it on pedestal, we could take it down off a of pedestal for a while and just examine it as it is. Mm. And then if we still like it, we can put it back on that pedestal or put it on a slightly shorter pedestal or something. That's that's fine, too. So it's been interesting to sort of look back at Star Trek and not look at it with nostalgia goggles or the goggles of sheer geek reverence and just look at it as a TV series, Mm. you know, warts and all. And that's been really exciting to do. And yeah, yeah, I love doing it. And there's so much Trek and there's so much, uh, so many things the show has done and so much influence that it's had that we're not going to run out of material ever. No, no, never. Like we've done the math. Like we're not going to be done with that podcast. I mean, if they stopped making Star Trek now, it would take us like a decade. And uh, they just announced, like, five new series, yeah, so, so we're, we're well, stuck. Yeah, this is I, uh, our life now. I, I made this, this observation. Star Trek Now is... Do you remember Guitar Hero Van Halen? I worked on Guitar yeah. Hero Van Halen. Okay, so you, a, you remember... I was a quality well, assurance tester on uh, that game. Guitar Hero was in massively popular throughout the 2000s. Uh, so massively popular, it, it's difficult to describe to people how popular it was and baffling to ponder how just not talked about anymore it is. Yeah, it just died. It just d- vanished from yeah. the pop consciousness. And the reason it died so quickly was oversaturation. Yep. Rather than meet out the games and get people excited about these games and make 
bigger, more complex games. They just started releasing more and more and more, more all into the marketplace packs, more, yeah. all at once. And that's called overexposure. Mm-hmm. And they died. I feel the like game was so simple that you could have just released. By the time they reached like Guitar Hero three and like Rock Band two, mm-hmm. um, you kind of nailed it. Just keep releasing new expansion, like not expansion packs, just new songs. Yeah, that's it. I was buying new songs for that, mm-hmm. like all the time. Like or, that's you know, a good in, in, perennial investment. In, it's in, like The Sims. You don't need to come out with a new one every year. You do every five years. You update the graphics or something. Or come up with a, a more, more complicated guitar that's ten yeah. buttons instead of five. You know, but whatever yeah. it is. But instead, they were like, "Oh, we need to." People like this. We need to make sure that they're plunking down eighty dollars twice a year. And I'm like, everyone's like, "It's the same game. I don't need yeah, these yeah. expansion packs all the time." And they just lost interest, and the game didn't evolve, and now we don't have them anymore. Like at those, all. Uh, those expansion packs. That's Star Trek Lower Decks. That's yeah. season three of Picard, even though I haven't made season two yet. Yeah. That's the Section Thirty One series. Like all of the CBS has Star Trek, and gosh darn it, they're going to make sure you're going to watch at least one of those goddamn things. Yeah. So they're going to have five shows running simultaneously. I don't. I love Star Trek. I don't want that much. I love ice cream. I don't need 10 scoops, well, three just, meals a day. It's just going to get a little diffused, isn't it? Yeah, like it's going to not it's, seem it's very be, focused. And it's going to be really I, overexposed. And there's going to be too a lot much Star Trek. Well, there's going to be a lot of cooks. About. There's yeah. going to be a lot of cooks as well. They're not mm-hmm. all going to be following like the same, like, you know, menu. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe all that stuff will be good. That's awesome. But maybe it's just going to be so much that it dilutes our interest yeah you know just can't keep up with it all so so we are in the uh guitar hero van halen phase of star trek Uh, in any case that is the episode this week of we've got mail that (laughs) sentence was weird thank you william shatner (laughs) i don't know how i did that uh but yeah that's this week's we've got mail thank you everybody who wrote in uh if we didn't get to your letters yet we'll try next week Uh, we never have time for all of them but we do our best Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure every letter that we do read gets a decent amount of time as opposed to someone writing in and us going yep and then moving on that would suck Mm -hmm. so uh thank you everyone who wrote in we really really appreciate it um we'll be back next week with more we've got Mm -hmm. mail you can write in letters at critically acclaimed.net and again, if you if your email comes in while we're recording, we will put it on the show. Uh, but I'll warn you, we record at different times all yeah, the time. You can never predict when no. you're going to record. So just send the letter when you're going to send yeah. it. And like, maybe I can't, maybe I can't recall the last, like, I'm not telling you when we recorded this one. So, the person who wrote the email we read knows when we recorded this one. But, like, to everyone else, we haven't recorded at this time in, like, years. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've never recorded at this time in so long. It's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in any case, again, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's where you can write in. You can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Facebook page if you want to join in the conversation there. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network, where uh, people sometimes leave, uh, uh, you know, notes and comments on our various uh, podcasts. Um, we also have a ton of exclusive content over there, including stuff we talked about in this episode, Firefly, Star Trek. We're doing a podcast where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture um, and other stuff besides. Uh, there's a ton of content just sitting there, and if you subscribe for the first time, you're going to get hours worth. So, hmm. um, anyway, we're very grateful to everybody who subscribes. We're very grateful to those people because they keep us going uh, because we're not 
you know, there's not a lot of work going around for critics right now. Well, this this is what we're doing now. This, this is, is kind this of is it. it for us. So yeah. like, you're you're really really invaluable uh, to not just keeping the podcast going, but also our way of life, mm-hmm. like the rent and the bills and the cats getting fed. We'll get to you in a minute. Sergio Cat's getting fed Okay Uh, But seriously Talk a big game Thank you so much For Mm. everything you contribute Thank you so much for writing in If you can't afford to do any of that Thank you for following us Just listening Subscribing Every little bit helps Uh, We hope that every single one of you Is safe And keeping yourself sane And healthy In you know Mm. A a weird era In which we live And um, hopefully That our podcasts Can you know Make your day a little brighter I hope That would be nice That's that's, the plan That's the dream That's why we do it what, what, What we shoot for in any case, um, I guess we'll wrap it up there. So thank you for just being you. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.